Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Uh, Why don't we pray as we look at God's Word. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for sending your Son. Thank you even just from that video giving us the smallest sense of what it was like for Jesus dying on the cross for us. We pray as we look at your word now that you would speak to us. Please help us to understand it. Uh, Please help us to respond the way that we should to you and what you've done for us. Amen. Uh, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors at Salt Church. It's great to have you here. Happy Easter. Uh, Great to have you here with us for Good Friday and come back on Gooder Sunday. One thing you can't avoid at Easter time, there's a bunch of things you can't avoid at Easter time. One of them, let's see if I can get this slideshow working. There we go. One thing you can't avoid at Easter is chocolate. Um, We love to eat chocolate, and especially as Australians, we love to eat chocolate. I looked up some stats this week, Uh, some stats from uh 2017 so a little bit old but we come about seventh in the world as of 2017 in terms of the amount of chocolate that we eat on average per person you got the swiss switzerland sorry first then austria germany uk sweden belgium aussies we smash america even uh of all things on average we eat about five and a half kilograms per year per person uh but Only 14.2 million of us eat chocolate. So a lot of us are going above and beyond and doing, you know, really doing our part, which is great to see. Uh, But I think, I think the chocolate Easter egg, I think the chocolate Easter egg is a very good symbol of Easter. If you wouldn't call yourself a, if you would call yourself a Christian, you're probably thinking, yes, of course, the chocolate Easter egg, you know, it's this great representation. The egg is a picture of new life. And it's empty like the empty tomb. But that's not actually what I mean. I mean something different. I think the chocolate Easter egg is a great picture, a great symbol for Easter if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. For many people in in Australia, Easter is the long weekend where it rains. Though, praise God, we finally got some sun after a whole weekend, weeks of storms. But why is the picture of an Easter egg, why is that a great picture of Easter if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian? Well, I think it's because we enjoy life like we enjoy Easter eggs. We love pleasure. We love our lifestyle. We love pleasure in life. We love our wealth. We love our safety. We love fun. And it's like an Easter egg what we enjoy because it's sweet, but it doesn't really last. It's this quick pleasure, this quick fix uh, we, we all know that we're not great at delayed gratification. This is what we go for. We chase our pleasures and we, when you enjoy them too much and you eat too much of them, you become sick. And it's like an Easter egg because it's hollow. It's hollow as in our pleasures are often shallow. Jesus came though to offer us something so much better. So good, in fact, that Jesus says it's worth giving up everything for. It's so valuable, you should pray for it, you should search for it, you should hold on to it when you get it. What is it? Hope. 
Jesus gives hope. And there's one other thing you can't avoid this Easter, is uncertainty and a lack of hope. Uh, maybe you feel this this Easter. I keep hearing people say, I keep saying, you know, this is, this is really great with everything that's going on in our world. Or this is so strange with everything that's going on in our world. The, the war in Ukraine, the pandemics, the fire, the floods, even problems in our own lives. There's so much uncertainty in life at the moment. Uh, even me talking right now, it was meant to actually be Michael, our lead pastor, giving this talk. Uh, I read his note. He got COVID last night, so I read his notes about two hours ago. Uh, just enough time to change some of his illustrations. And so now, <laughs> uh, now he's going to, you're facing the uncertainty of what the heck am I going to say? And he's facing the uncertainty of listening to me butcher his talk. So this will be great. Uh, but into our uncertainty, into all this uncertainty, Jesus brings hope. He came to give hope, a certain future in a broken world, and the hope of happiness and peace in the middle of the brokenness right now. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks and months at Salt Church, we've been winding our way through a biography of Jesus' life that was written by a man named Matthew. Uh, He was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his followers, and we've seen week after week Jesus step into our world full of uncertainty and brokenness and death and offer real solid hope. And it's the same hope that he offers now to us in our uncertain world. Uh, The historical events of Easter 2,000 years ago are the most significant events that ever happened in human history. They changed the world in extraordinary ways. They've saved millions of lives and changed millions of lives. And Easter, Easter just gives us these massive promises. And Easter delivers on our deepest desires. Not just the quick pleasure, not just the quick fix, but what we actually and really want. And it really does deliver. If you would call yourself a Christian, I'm sure you'd agree that what happened at Easter changed your life. Or maybe as you listen today, it's about to. But like anything that's valuable or anything that's worthwhile, it comes at a massive cost. It's a massive cost for God We saw a bit of that in the video just now. It literally cost Jesus his life. And it will cost you to benefit from this. So the challenge for us this morning is, will we appreciate what it costs God? And are you prepared to bear the cost to benefit from what God did at Easter? That's where we're heading. And the way we're going to do it is through those sentences that Miranda just read out for us. We're going back to the original sources, back to the very words of Jesus And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're here exploring, maybe Easter is the only time you'd find yourself in a church, great to have you here. There's no better place to start than here as you try and work out what's myth and what's legend and what's popular misconceptions about Jesus and what's the truth about Jesus. So let's have a look. Uh, Hopefully you've got a Bible in front of you. If not, you can just Google, search Matthew 16 and it'll come up. How does Jesus secure our hope? And what do we need to do to benefit from it? We find out in a conversation between Jesus and Peter. Uh, Just before this, Peter has been totally on point. After everyone has just completely misunderstood Jesus, Peter finally recognizes Jesus as the Christ. Peter is one of Jesus' followers, and he finally recognizes something about Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Christ is not his surname. It's a title. He's the Christ. He's the King. 
It means the one who rules the universe, the king who has expected thousands of years, and now he's here. The, the one who will bring a never-ending kingdom that is so good. Peter gets who Jesus is, and it's massive that he gets this. And Jesus says, you've seen who I am. Now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. So have a look with me. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. If this is the first time that you're ever hearing this, surely that sounds pretty shocking. This is not what you would expect a king to say is coming up for them in their life. Uh, If you've heard this many times, it's probably lost the shock. But this just doesn't happen to a king. Notice though that the word must, it comes up twice. Jesus began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Uh, This must happen. It has to happen. This is God's plan. There's no other way to do this. And Jesus is emphatic about it. He won't budge on this. And his friend and his follower, Peter, is totally shocked by this. Look in verse 22, next sentence. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, this is, this is pretty fascinating, isn't it? He's just realized that Jesus is the Lord. He's the king. He's the one who has the right to tell him how to live. And now Peter tells Jesus what to do. I think that actually gives us this profound insight into how humans behave, doesn't it? I think this is what we do. We all do this. We say to God, you're the Lord. You're God. But I kind of think I've got better ideas than you. I mean, your ideas are still good. Like, they're not bad ideas. But I think I'd prefer if you did it my way, God, not the other way around. I think... Maybe let's go my way instead of your way. That's kind of what he's saying here. But both Jesus and Peter are emphatic about this. Jesus says, I must go to the cross. And Peter says, never go to the cross. And there's something pretty positive, I think, and maybe even endearing about Peter here. Isn't this the kind of friend you wish you had? The friend that would have your back? He loves Jesus. And he wants to protect Jesus, even protect Jesus from himself and from this terrible idea that he's got. But he's telling the Lord of the universe what to do. And the Christ with no cross is no Christ at all. Jesus is not just the king promised way back in the Old Testament part of the Bible. Jesus is the suffering servant promised in the Old Testament. So rather than help Jesus... Peter actually hinders Jesus. Uh, We saw last week, Peter is called the rock. Jesus changes his name. His name's Simon. He changes it to Simon Peter because Peter means the rock. Peter the rock has become the stumbling block. He's tripping Jesus up from what he must do as he dies to take our sins, as he dies to take the sins of the world. And this is why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 23. Have a look, verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Uh, 
Peter goes from blessed are you, Peter, to get behind me, Satan, in about two minutes. And I'm sure this is kind of a bit weird if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, because just in the middle of this, Jesus has dropped Satan. He just talked about Satan as a real being. And this is one of the things that the Bible teaches us. It's pretty unusual, it's pretty unfamiliar. If you're new to the Bible and exploring Jesus, one of the things the Bible teaches us is that there's more to this world than what we can touch and taste and smell and feel. There's a supernatural part of the world and a spiritual part of the world with God and angels and demons and Satan. And here Jesus calls Peter Satan. What does, what does that mean to call someone Satan? Is Jesus overreacting here? Uh, is Peter possessed by Satan somehow? Is this just how Jesus deals with opposition? You know, every time someone disagrees with you, you just play the get behind me Satan card. Like, that would be pretty convenient. No, I don't think it's any of those things. I think it's actually far more subtle than that. Far more profound. I think Jesus sees in Peter the way that Satan thinks. In Peter's thinking, he can see the thinking of Satan. And we get a clue to this earlier in Matthew's gospel, back in chapter 4. Jesus is tempted in the desert by the devil. And the devil, Satan, says to Jesus, If you bow down to me right now, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Right now, you can get all that gain without any of the pain. You don't need to go to the cross to suffer. If you bow to me and obey my will, I'll give it all to you. And isn't that better? My way is so much better than God your Father's way, isn't it? It's the easy route. It's the comfortable way. It's the shortcut. And Jesus says, no, I must go to the cross. There's no other way to pay for the sins of the world, to rescue lost people. It's the same thing he says just a few pages on in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he dies, as he contemplates the horror of the cross, He prays. He prays to God, his father. And he says to his father, look, God, if there's any other way, let me know. Now would be a great time to let me know if there's any other way than this. But not my will, but yours be done. Peter doesn't get that there is a war going on for Jesus. There's a war between God's way or his own way, between his father's way or rejecting it. And there's a war going on for all of us too. A war for our souls. And the war is, will I go God's way or will I go my own way? As you look at those two options, will I go God's way, will I go my own way? As you look at those two options, which way do you think Satan would love you to go? What's the worst thing that Satan can do to you? Obviously, Satan wants us to go our way. And the worst thing Satan can do to you, well, if you've watched one too many horror movies, I don't know, drink blood, kill puppies, something dark and and evil and spectacular and outrageous and oppressive. But Jesus tells us there's something far worse than all of that. The worst thing Satan can do for you is convince you that your will is the most important thing. The worst thing Satan can do is convince you that what you want to do is far more important than what God wants you to do. That eating Easter eggs and chasing pleasures in this life is the point of your life. That if you're successful and your glory and your happiness, that all of those things are more important 
than God's design and God's plan and God's purpose and will for your life. Now, that doesn't sound dark or evil or satanic at all, does it? That just sounds pretty normal. We like that. Going my own way is a very culturally acceptable value. We often hear people say this, don't let anyone judge you for how you live. Be who you are. Be true to yourself. You decide what matters to you and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We think our way is pretty normal. It may not look spectacular, but that is the work of Satan, Jesus is telling us. Now, you might not yet be convinced that Satan is real, but I want to say I think Satan's done such a good job that we don't even notice there's a problem. We don't even think that's wrong. And we need to be forever grateful that Jesus rebukes Peter, that Jesus stood up to Satan, that Jesus obeyed his father and went to the cross. And in another gospel by another friend, follower of Jesus, John, John 2 tells us that Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross, not just to give us a great example of love. He did it to destroy the devil's work. And it's so good that he did that, that that he didn't get distracted. He stayed the course. He obeyed his father's will. There's nothing worse than a rescuer who's distracted. Imagine if you were in hospital. You're in hospital and something is seriously wrong with you. You've taken a dramatic turn for the worst. Your life is hanging in the balance. You need to see the doctor immediately. And she's on her way. She's coming from the other end of the hospital. She's coming to you. She walks past the hospital cafe, though, and her colleagues are sitting there. And her colleagues say, come and have a coffee. She's like, no, no, I've got to, I've got to go see this patient. They can wait. I'm sure it's not that urgent. Come and have a coffee. Come and have a break with us. What's the hurry? You want that rescuer to say, no, get behind me, move out of my way, I have to go. That's what Jesus says. And if the other disciples got this, they would turn to Peter and say, shut up, you're completely wrong. Don't distract Jesus. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, all humans will meet God unforgiven, unaccepted. It's awful that Jesus has to go to the cross. It's a terrible thing that we celebrate. We call it Good Friday, and it's good for the news that it is, for the result that it leads to, but it's terrible at the same time that Jesus went through this. But if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, the souls of millions upon millions upon millions of people will perish and spend eternity away from God in hell. What are you talking about, Peter? Let Jesus obey his Father. That is what's so good about Easter. That's why this is a good Friday. Jesus doesn't give in to temptation. He obeys his father's will. He goes to the cross. He dies in our place for our sins so that we might be forgiven. So we might go from being enemies of God to friends and family of God. That's the hope that Jesus brings. That's the hope we need in this uncertain time. It's peace with God right now and a future to come. And that is massively good, massively good news. But it's massively costly news. And cost Jesus. And just as Jesus gives his life up for us, he calls us to give up our life for him. 
The pathway that the Messiah, that Jesus took, is also the pathway his people take. You see that in verse 24. Have a look, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. If you want life that's truly life, not the fleeting pleasures, deep satisfaction and joy and peace and hope and comfort, if you want life that's truly life, you need to give up your own way. Come out from Satan's rule. Give up your self-determination and hand over the reins of your life to God. And when you do that, you'll find a rich and satisfying new life. Jesus says we all have a decision to make right here. And you'll need to work out for yourself if you think it's worth following Jesus. But look at what Jesus says next. Look at how he puts it. Verse 26, he said, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, how much is this worth to you? What's the most important thing you have? It's you, isn't it? Aren't you the most important thing you have? What good is it if you get everything you've wanted? If you own your own house, own multiple houses, if you have a great job, the kind of job where they, you're, you would turn up even if they didn't pay you. You make great investments. I don't know if there is such a job like that, but you make great investments. You've got friends, you've got family. You have the most pleasurable life you could possibly have on this earth, but you get this wrong. You disqualify yourself from heaven and peace with God. Even if you gained the whole world, it wouldn't be worth it. But of course, you won't gain the whole world. Even Elon Musk doesn't have the whole world. And you probably won't die for Jesus. Some Christians will, but it's unlikely that we will. Get the spreadsheet. Work this out if it's worth it. Do the cost-benefit analysis. Ring your accountant. Add up the cost. See if this works. Do the sums. See, I've never met a Christian who said that it's not worth it. I've never met anyone who regrets turning to Jesus. But what are you going to do? Will you give up your life for him? What's stopping you from doing that? Whatever it is, whatever pleasure, whatever lifestyle choice, whatever relationship, it has to be really, really good because you're giving up eternity for it. That's what's at stake here. You're giving up peace with God now for that. It's not worth it. You can't get this wrong. There are so many things you can get wrong in life. But this is the one thing you must not get wrong. Uh, recently, Michael told me about something bad that he did wrong, that he got badly wrong. I thought I'd leave this illustration in. <laughs> I thought this was a good illustration. Uh, he, he told me he was at the petrol station and he was driving a diesel car, a car that he'd borrowed off somebody else. Uh, and he grabbed the nozzle and put the fuel in. And he was in a, in a bit of a rush, in a hurry. And he realized he grabbed the petrol pump and he was putting petrol in a diesel engine. Uh, and so he called the attendant over and the attendant said, don't start the car under any circumstances. Don't start the car. This could cost you thousands of dollars. So here he is with his car, just sitting there in the line, a long row of cars now lining up behind him, waiting for their turn at the Bowser. 
and so he got the attendant, they helped him roll the car away, move it out of the way, and he rang a business that specializes in draining petrol out of diesel engines. He had to wait two and a half hours for them to come. He had to pay them a few hundred dollars to, to get it, and he was standing there waiting while they pumped out all the fuel, with every person who walked into the servo thinking, what an idiot, like, that's his worst, not mine. Uh, <laughs> and what made it worse is that it wasn't his car. Uh, he'd borrowed it from someone here at Salt Church. I don't know who. He borrowed it from someone here. So maybe, maybe think twice about lending Michael your car. I'm not sure. But apparently, whoever this person is forgave Michael. He, he finally got home. The car's fine. Life goes on. We can mess up so many things. I'm sure I could have come up with an illustration too, but that was a pretty good one. We can mess up so many things, and you can afford to mess up things like that. But you can't afford to mess it up when it comes to Jesus. You can't afford to get Jesus wrong. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, there'll be two destinations, two choices. Heaven, life with God in perfect bliss, or hell. And we don't like talking about hell. This is not a very popular idea. But hell is awful. Think of the worst, most unfathomably awful thing you can think of. Times it by a billion, and you've almost got a sense of what hell is like. And on that last day, there's those two places, those who are with Jesus and those who are against him. Those who experience eternal life and those who are cast out into the darkness. And it all depends on what you make of Jesus. This really, really, really matters. And so Jesus here, with great compassion, he warns us. He pleads with us. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What's, what's it worth to you? Give up your life now and you'll gain life then and peace with God right now. Hold on to your life now and you'll lose life then. And you'll only ever experience the temporary joy of Easter eggs. What do you need to do to be a disciple of Jesus? You need to recognize that Jesus is the king and bow your knee to him. You need to see that Jesus must die in your place for your sins and that he rose again. And you need to realize you must die to yourself, lose your life and follow him. And as we finish up, I want to give you an opportunity to do that if you've never done that before. Uh, by praying a prayer, by talking to God. But before we do that, before I pray that prayer, and as you're working out how you're going to respond, let me say, what does it look like to actually lose your life for Jesus? I'm going to pray so that you can choose to start doing that. What does that actually look like, though? What does it mean? Well, two things to say. It happens when you first become a Christian. It's a moment in time. It's a one-off decision. I'm handing the reins of my life to Jesus. He's in charge now. First, it is this one-off thing. But secondly, it's the decision you keep on making every single day to keep dying for yourself, to keep living for Jesus. I think a helpful way to think about this is to picture a house, to think of your life as a house. This is an old, old illustration, old bit of goody. Uh, when you become a Christian, you give Jesus the keys to your house, the keys to your life. And gradually, Jesus is changing every single room in that house through the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't do it all at once. He does it room by room. In fact, there's probably rooms that you've got blocked off. They're boarded up. You don't want God to go in there. You don't want Jesus to change that part of your life. 
Amen. Uh, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, let us know. We, we'd love to help you in the journey of transforming that house, uh, to help you on the journey of following Jesus. Or maybe you need to know more before you decide to pray a prayer like that, before you can pray it sincerely. Uh, we'd love to help you. Andy will tell you more after we sing about how to do that. Um, why don't we stand and let's sing to our good God who's done this for us.